Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. What's up, SDS Nation, and welcome to the second episode today of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime. And look at this. The COE is on screen. I think she is now getting jealous. And what? Oh, she just took herself off the minute I said that. She forgot that she was <laughs> on, and now she is no more. But uh, today, of course, uh, we have some of the finest guests when it comes to breaking down all things Dan Markell and Adelson, obviously in light of the fact that Donna Adelson is in a Leon County uh, jail, um, hoping that one day she gets out and uh, with a trial impending uh we've got some great guests to break this all down starting off with lewis baptiste he's uh one of two lawyers behind the firm uh webster and baptiste in tallahassee uh stephen who was supposed to be here unfortunately and very sadly had a funeral to attend uh so Gigi jumped in last minute i will introduce her in a moment but uh lewis is here and he was one of dan markell's students in law school and you know him because he's been on the show a bunch of times then john singer what can you say about this guy he is the co-founder of singer deutsch llp designated a super lawyer every year you can ever imagine uh he is a legal analyst for cnbc the guy can recall every new england patriot fact from 1973 on uh he is one of new york's big power brokers. Uh, the reason we were delayed is he can't figure out how to get his <laughs> phone to go from portrait to landscape. The wife had to come in for that one. Certain people have gifts in certain areas. Um, John is a gifted attorney. When it comes to technology, maybe not so much. It is a lesson in life. And uh, last but not least, Gigi McKelvey. What can I say about her? She is a rock star, literally and figuratively. Uh, she hosts Pretty Lies and Alibis. She does work for Law and Crime. She does work for News Nation. She covered the Lori Vallow Daybell trial from beginning to end, has over 50 podcasts on that. She made a name for herself with Alec Murdoch and now making a, herself a name with uh, all things going on with Donna Adelson here. Now, I sort of um, prematurely tweeted something and the COE yelled at me. I got word today from a very, very reliable source that we had about another 100 hours worth of jailhouse calls. We were trying to figure out, uh, Gigi went ahead. Um, you know, not all of us content creators are always fighting with each other. Gigi and I, we get along great. A lot of us get along great. And so uh, Gigi and I talked and what was sent to us was actually redundant. So we're trying to go back and figure out uh, if in fact there are new calls. There should be new calls. And so we will... Uh, see how that all plays out. Um, we're going to go through some of the same things we went through yesterday, and that is because Gigi, Lewis, and John haven't really responded to all these things. Starting off with the hearing for Donna Adelson yesterday, I'm going to play that one more time because I'd like John um, especially to chime in on this. Uh, he's got some strong takes, and then, of course, Lewis, the other attorney. So without further ado, this is um, Judge Stephen Everett, very uh, commanding presence in the courtroom. This is Donna's. Th this runs about three or four minutes, so bear with us, and then we'll play some of my sound with Dan Rashbaum from this past Thursday. Here is Donna's hearing yesterday. 
Ms. Adelson, there is a matter that I am going to have to address with you as well concerning uh, conflicts that would be related to your counsel in this representation. I'm going to need to swear you in and take some brief testimony from you. And from there, I'll continue with the attorneys. Please raise your right hand, ma'am. Do you swear or affirm the testimony you're about to give will be the truth? I do. You can lower your hand. Ms. Adelson, do you understand under the Constitution you have the right to conflict-free representation? I do. As it relates to your current attorney, Mr. Rauschbaum, representing you, you understand that he has certain duties as it relates to his prior representation with your son? Yes, Your Honor. I understand. You understand his prior duty of confidence that he must maintain under the rules of professional responsibility in some way could affect your representation? I do, Your Honor. And do you also understand in deciding whether or not to waive any conflict concerning this matter, you have the right to obtain independent counsel on that matter? I do, Your Honor. Have you been able to discuss with independent counsel whether or not you waive any conflicts as it relates to the prior representation of your son? I have, Your Honor. And are you, in fact, waiving any such conflicts? I am, Your Honor. There is a second issue as well as it relates to the rules of professional responsibility for attorneys. There is another prohibition within them that deals with the matter of an attorney possibly being a witness in a case. I do not know if the state would seek to call your attorney as a witness for any matter. However, you understand an attorney cannot be both advocate and witness in the same case. I understand that, Your Honor. Do you understand as well if the state attempted to call your attorney for any reason that could materially affect your defense? I understand. Do you also understand you have the right to obtain independent counsel to assist you in making the decision as to whether or not you wish to waive this conflict or even potential of conflict, I should say? Yes, I'm aware of that, Your Honor. And do you waive this potential conflict as well? I do. Mr. Rauschbaum, do you wish there to be any further inquiry as it would pertain to Lazarlay versus State? No, Your Honor. Thank you, Ms. Adelson. That will conclude all testimony that I will need. Hey, Joel, we're not very good at lip reading, buddy. That was my fault. That was all my fault. <laughs> Lazar Laver State. Louis mm -hmm. Baptiste, are you familiar with Lazar Laver State? You're muted now. We're all muted. I think it's everybody's on mute. I am. And it's the it's like a it's a seminal case in the area of conflict. And it's kind of what I talked to the guests about a couple shows ago. I anticipated this hearing would happen. And so what he went through was a procedure to ensure that uh, as the case requires, uh, that Donna was waiving any potential conflict and really any appellate issue that could arise from that conflict, right? And so we know that legally any waiver has to be knowing, voluntary, and intelligent. 
And so what he was doing was ensuring that her waiver was knowing voluntary intelligence with those specific questions. John Singer, let me ask you a, a crass question, if I may. Dan Rashbaum, great guy, came on the show, nice person, uh, bad clients, I think. And he got destroyed in this case. Uh, the verdict came back in under three hours. This is why it's crass. Why in the hell would Don Adelson want to rehire him? So <clears throat> I think that he's obviously developed a very close relationship with the family over the prior seven years. Um, I believe he said on your show that he had met the family initially in or about October 16 at about the time of Katie's arrest. And I think that they developed a, a very, very close, very enmeshed relationship. And I think that even though he lost and he lost in such a, a, a terrible manner, I think that the if you listen to the jailhouse calls, all the Adelsons on those calls, Donna and Harvey and chiming in the background and also Charlie, are all acknowledging that it wasn't Rashbaum's fault. It was the fact that this was a Super Bowl in Tallahassee. No Adelson would ever get acquitted in that jurisdiction. So I think that they went with the, the devil they knew, who they had a lot of trust in. He did a really good job, notwithstanding the verdict at the trial. Um, I think that if anything, um, they probably instructed him and, and he probably agreed that he needed local counsel to help with the jury selection and to, and to read the room better. But th they're close. You could tell from um, the way she the way Donna speaks of him, uh, about him on those jailhouse calls. She's very laudatory of his performance. She kept saying over and over again to Charlie, there is nothing that he could have done. There's nothing that anybody could have done with this particular uh, jury pool. So I, I think that's the reason for it. Um, the better question is, why did he take the case? Not why they used him. The better question, I'm sure we'll get into it, is why would he want to go back for round two? It's really a no-win situation for him, other than and, financially. And this case hearing, this case management hearing that we just listened to basically in full, uh, you can see Judge Stephen Everett asking, uh, Don Adelson to affirm or swear to understand all these conflicts and that they've all been waived. Is this the court's way of uh, covering their behind uh, so there's not, you know, that limits potential appeals if she is to lose her case? I don't, I don't actually think that's the entire reason for the hearing. So just to, to amplify what uh, Lewis said, the, I think that this was at the behest of Rashbaum because at the end of the day, if, in fact, it becomes necessary for him to be called as a witness and then for him to have to withdraw from the representation, he doesn't want there to be any sort of issue between he and the client. So he needed to get on the record with sworn testimony that the client was fully aware that there was a waivable conflict vis-a-vis -vis his representation of her, given his antecedent representation of Charlie, and that there's a possibility that he could be a witness and you can't be an advocate and a witness concurrently. And he wanted Donna to affirm and swear on the record that she sought independent counsel and that that, in fact, has been taken care of. So it's not just for the appellate issues. It's also to cover Rashbaum in the event that things go in a different direction uh, down the road. And Gigi, I promise I'm coming to you. But <clears throat> uh, in, a, <clears throat> in a word, uh, Lewis, is this a mess? Because now, like, everyone's signing waivers. Rashbaum was on, on my show. Nice of him to come on on Thursday. Charlie had to sign a waiver. 
Donna had to sign a waiver. I think Harvey may have had to sign a waiver because he was their lawyer first, then Charlie's lawyer now back. I mean, is this just a mess and asking for trouble down the road? Yes, I think it's a mess. I think it's going to get messy upon conviction. And here's why. Every defense lawyer knows who anyone's any defense lawyer who ever tried a case understands that after you get convicted, your client might like you for a couple of days, maybe for a couple of months. And if you were really good for a couple of years, but eventually every client turns every client after X year after X year in jail. My lawyer was horrible. My lawyer sucked. And they all filed a 3850. A 3850 is ineffective assistance of counsel. And so when you're trying cases, you have to anticipate that they're going to file an ineffective assistance of counsel. And here's what makes this really messy. You know, they have one of the best appellate lawyers in the Southeast, you know, not just Florida. Upperman has been hired in major white collar crime cases across the Southeast. Normally, he's retained prior to the case even going to trial. So he's sitting in on the trial. That's what level of appellate lawyer he is, is that he's he's retained before the verdict is even out. And so Ufferman is the top notch appellate lawyer. And so if you're Ufferman, a part of his job is to 100 percent review claims for ineffective assistance of counsel and whether or not Rashbaum was ineffective in any way in his manner of representation as it pertained to Charlie. OK, and so what we can have is we can have a we can have it possibly exist a world where Upperman is filing a motion challenging uh, Rashbaum's effectiveness while Rashbaum is essentially representing Donna. That's a realistic, that's a realistic theory that if Upperman does his job, which he will, because he's one of the best, I imagine is going to happen. So you just imagine that he's being called ineffective legally in proceedings in motions while he's representing a mother, while he's representing the mother as part of the same charging sequence it's going to get messy uh kcl obviously a friend of the show in salt lake city who is uh, very knowledgeable about a lot of cases uh to you Gigi, she says donna is sub- subdued in the hearing we just watched compared to what she is ordinarily like followed by another friend of the show Lindsay shea do you think rash coached john uh donna to be more well-behaved in court she seemed very tame. Uh, that was actually from yesterday morning. Uh, what do you make of that, Gigi? I know you and I are not the attorneys, but we're observers, and you're in a plenty of courtrooms, much different than we when we first saw Donna in Tallahassee, where Judge Everett basically told her to pipe down. This time, you know, subdued. She's got the purple on. Someone said the Barney purple. What do you make of her um, demeanor? First of all, I think that there were no accusations against her. So there was really nothing she could be shocked at. This was kind of run of the mill, raise your hand. You understand that you're you're agreeing that this guy's going to be your counsel, even though there could be conflict. So I think that that contributed to the fact that there wasn't really anything she could, you know, like throw her mouth open like a catfish at. Um, the other thing that I noticed, though, is she seems to be physically faring well in prison. I expected a much more frail looking Donna, but uh, I mean, don't. Don't like blow me up in the comments. I think she may even look a little physically healthier behind bars. So I don't know, but I'm sure she's medicated. I'm sure they've got mental health, you know, um, on her her case and and they're checking her out. So, you know, we've heard from the jail calls and everything. They love their Xanax. So I don't know. Maybe it's like the Xanax. Maybe it's just that this was very, you know, 
run-of-the-mill stuff, but we'll see at the next hearing when they start slinging some stuff her way if she, she can contain herself. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't think so. Look at Kay Long, uh, making sure that she keeps me in check. I used to be a, t- a radio TV producer. Remember to applaud Mr. Cohen. That would be Meve Moe and Steve Cohen, STS producer, does all the hard work. I just gave him a shout-out in the last show. I'll do it again. Shout-out to the COE, Space Coast on the West Coast, Meve Moen, and um, everyone else. Of course, the mods. The mods do unbelievable work here, but I never want to list them in fear of forgetting one of them. John Singer, to your point off the top, forget Don Adelson hiring Dan Rashbaum. Why is Dan Rashbaum putting himself in the crosshairs once again, why is he doing this to himself? And uh, Brianna says John Singer has the best lighting. I find that offensive being a professional <laughs> podcaster, Gigi. And I. But go ahead. I, it's a great question. I mean, you, you know, obviously there's the pecuniary gain because I'm sure he's getting paid well. But it, it is puzzling why he'd want to do this to himself again. And I don't mean from a labor standpoint because it's the same case. I mean, I understand that. Um, he's got a, a slightly different defense and, and we can go through some of the evidentiary points that he touched on, which I think was bizarre for a defense lawyer to give the prosecution the entire playbook. He told, you know, uh, he said on your show um, exactly how he's going to attack each piece of incriminating evidence against Donna. So, I mean, that in and of itself um, was strange, but for him, it's such a lose-lose situation. Um, you know, his client got convicted the last time in three hours, including the lunch break, with a theory that had never been floated by him or anybody else. So they did take the state uh, or catch them off guard, if you will. Obviously, the state had a chance over the course of the week trial to digest the, the cockamamie theory they propounded. But at the end of the day, it was a new theory. Now everybody knows Everybody knows now the theory, and Donna has a, a slight iteration of it, but he's already gone on air and, and told the prosecution how he's going to attack each and every piece of, of incriminatory evidence against Donna. The prosecution's going to be ready. They know him now as a practitioner. They didn't know him um, as well, uh, certainly, in the Charlie case. So he's going to lose, and, and the evidence is is so strong, and it's going to be another loss on his record. And Maybe he doesn't care, but if it were me, I would want nothing to do with this case. I would hand off the Adelsons to Tallahassee Council. I would move on with my life. I'm sure he's got a very busy docket. He's a good lawyer. I would never throw myself into this morass again if I were him. Uh, pecuniary, by the way, P-E-C-U. I have to look it up. N-I-A-R-Y. That is S. You learn SAT words with John Singer. Of or involving money, involving a money penalty or fine, pecuniary. Singer, how did you get such a uh, vast vocabulary? Where does it come from? Is it just your ability to remember words? I, I think it's it's an intellectual frailty, which is overcome by big words. It it, it it will make you think I'm smart when we all know the truth. Well, certainly people in this house know the truth. I don't know about anywhere else, but... Um, but there's so much, but just to one thing I for, forgot in the last answer, I, I, I know, you know, this Joel, cause you conducted the interview of him. Yeah. He took literally every piece of compelling evidence for the prosecution 
And he told everybody who was listening, including, I'm sure, the prosecutor, how he was going to spin each and every piece of evidence there. He told, and we can go through it, but it, it was unbelievable. I mean, he gave the prosecution the entire playbook. I, I, I found that to be the most puzzling part of the interview, For, forgetting why he came on, and I'm sure we'll get into that, but just the granularity of his defense and how he went through all those different pieces of evidence to me, to what end? I don't know. I'm going to annoy the COE right now. COE, I just brought you back live. I hope that you're loading a couple more clips up. Otherwise, it's going to be a very short show. Love you. Thank you. Um, I will do what I can. Hey, Joel, how do you like your couch? Because I think you might be there tonight, bud. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when it plays out live. There's nothing like it. Uh, granularity, that's a good one from Ned Smith. Um, does this judge think there's going to be a conflict? What say you, Lewis? Um, judge Everett, no slouch. He knows what can happen under appeal. Um, he's covering, you know, he's dotting his I's and T's. But what about this notion that he thinks that there could be a major conflict? Do you think he does think that? I think that Judge Everett imagines that a lawyer representing two defendants even in separate cases with the same facts and circumstances is problematic. I think that, but Judge Everett also knows that um, the right belongs to the client. It doesn't belong to the court. It doesn't belong to the prosecutor. And so since it's a right of a client, the right of confidentiality belongs to the client, that means that the client has the ability to waive it. And so I think that's exactly what Judge Everett is, is concerned with. He wants to make sure that Donna knows exactly what she is waving. And he wants to make sure that he puts that in writing, that it's clear. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he reduces that order and gives us an order within the next couple of days in writing. Even though there wasn't a written motion filed, I wouldn't be surprised if he files a written order in this case. And here's why. You know, it matters that at this point, you know, she's charged with capital offenses. And the state hasn't filed a waiver yet, which I'm sure they will. They did it in the other. It, they didn't. They didn't seek death in any other case. So I'm sure they will. But and that distinction is not without difference, right? And so if you're looking at two types of cases, um, the the number of a, the appellate track of a death penalty case is, you know, we talked about a couple of shows ago, is light years compared to what the appellate track of a regular first degree murder case will be which means the eyes that go on, the attention it gets. And so I think Judge Everett is also watching that. He's, he's looking at the state, wait, waiting for them to file that document, you know, stating formally that they don't intend to seek death to change the posture of the case. And I think that's going to change the posture of the case legally in, in, in how he frames the case, getting it ready for appeal. And if you, if you remember, we all remember from the trial, at some points, Judge Everett stopped rash bomb from making points that he felt might have hurt Charlie because he wanted to protect the record from Charlie's counsel himself. That's not common. Usually you don't see judges protect the record from lawyers themselves, but Judge Everett did that. That's not, you know, I, I practice here. Not all judges do that. And I think Judge Everett knows um, that this case is going to end up at the first DCA. It's going to be reviewed. And so he wanted to make sure that it doesn't get, it doesn't come back to him because it looks bad. Right. When a judge, you know, Judge Judge Everett jokes that the DCA issues his report cards. And every time you get a case sent back, you know what I mean? That's a failure, um, usually. 
And so no judge wants their case set back from the DCA. And Judge Everett does it uh, for sure. DCA, District Court of Appeals. Uh, Gigi, you and I are uh, on the media side of things. Um, you know, obviously, I wanted to have da- Dan Rashbaum on. He's a big player in this case, having defended Charlie and now Donna. Do you think it was a mistake for him to come on in retrospect? Well, you know, I I don't know. Maybe he feels like it was. I don't know. The 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 perception that I've seen online was just that it seemed like he was trying to convince people that Aylesons are good people. And so that can kind of change, you know. Um, I, I would think if I were him, I may be thinking, what was I thinking? But for you, I think it was good because people are interested to hear him away from being in the courtroom with the Adelsons, you know, hearing his side of things. Now, how much of what he said is what he actually feels as opposed to being her attorney. So it's like, you know, it's kind of hard to know what's genuinely how he feels about Donna, particularly. He can't get on here and say, oh man, she's 50 shades of Cray. You know, it's it's just not how it works. But um, no, I mean, maybe for him it was a mistake, but for you, it was a good call, man. You got to hear both sides. And I know people ha- gave ha- me some flack, but you know, it's good to hear from both sides. When do they not give me flack? <laughs> um, how, uh, how do you think he came across? Yeah, I, you know, look, I think he is a good attorney and and it's not a popular opinion, but he was super effective sometimes on cross. I mean, it didn't win in the case, but but his techniques, he was able to kind of turn things and get get you thinking another way, not that Charlie was innocent, but just, you know, you could see how he could work things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that he just away from the case, I think he seems like a really great attorney, but um, you're not going to convince most of the people that watch SDS Nation that Donna Adelson's just a misunderstood Grammy. Uh, that That is for damn sure. Uh, John Singer from Jen Singer. Uh, could Rashbaum be setting up the prosecution, hiding a different defense? In Charlie's case, he had the extortion. He, look, he came out on the show and in so many words said he's, go- he's sticking with the double extortion theory. Someone suggested... He might be playing uh, 3D or 4D chess. What do you think? I think he's sticking with the extortion, double extortion theory to an extent. Um, what he's going to say in his opening and what Donna is going to say when she testifies and she will testify is, is that Donna has no idea whether or not Charlie was extorted on July 18th of 2014. He told her he was, but she doesn't know yay or nay whether that occurred, but she believes him because he's her son. So he told her what happened or allegedly happened. She ascribed credence to it. She then decided um, to go along with it. They would put Katie on the payroll to keep her happy. Um, They would not go to the police. They would not go to Harvey. So the story is not going to be that Charlie was extorted. She's going to say, I can't opine on that either way. I wasn't there. I can only tell you, jury, what Charlie told me, which is the same story Charlie told the prior jury. And I, as his mother, believed it. So that's, it's, it's, it is the double extortion theory, but with a spin. She's not going to ask the jury to believe that Charlie was extorted. She's going to ask the jury to believe that she believed what he told her. And she wasn't a collaborator in the, in the conspiracy. That's what she's going to say. And then there's all these little bits of evidence that we all know are incriminating to her. And, and Rashbaum on your show gave you um, his spin on all of those. So that, that's going to be the theory that she's going to go with. 
And why are you so certain that Donna does, in fact, take the stand in her own defense? Because when the evidence is so compelling and so strong, as it is in this case, as it was in Charlie's case, the defendant has no chance to prevail but to take the stand. It, it's a Hail Mary, but the deck is so stacked against her. Her only prayer, her only prayer of even a hung jury is to somehow curry favor um, with a juror or two, that she's an elderly individual, she's in her 70s, um, it, would be, um, it would be a mistake to send her away for life. It's going to be a sympathy ploy, similar to what we saw in the 2019 Magmanua trial, where that one juror came out and admitted that they didn't vote guilty in the first trial, the, the hung jury trial, because they didn't want to send a mother away of two small children. So it's going to be the same here. There's no way in the world she is not testifying. Somebody has to explain the iteration of the double extortion theory. It's going to be her, just like it was Charlie. Charlie may even come and testify. Who knows? But she's she's definitely going to be on the witness stand. Wow. What, what would you put the odds on of Charlie testifying in this trial? Over 50%. Over wow. 50%. Over 50%. Just- because he needs to buttress her testimony that he told her that he had been extorted. And again, you don't have to believe he was to acquit Donna. You have to believe that she believed him. And you have to believe that all those other pieces of evidence, which I guess we'll talk about, um, were just, there's innocent explanations for all of it, which there's not. But that's, that's why I think Charlie will end up testifying. One of America's brighter attorneys saying a better than 50% chance that Wendy Adelson takes the stand. Um, Charlie, I'll Charlie Adelson. Charlie, not Wendy. Oh, no, Wendy's, not, right? Wendy's 95% taking the stand. She'll, 95%? She'll have, a, she'll have her fourth round. She, they have to use Wendy to get in the divorce file, to get in the motive, to get in all that stuff. So Wendy is a critical cog in the machine. She'll be there for the fourth round. No question about that. Wow. Getting uh, you're getting all the dirt from John Singer right now. I'll be the judge to uh, Louis Baptiste. Is it possible Donna's statements about Rashbaum's advice on fleeing created a situation where she needed to hire him to protect him for facing legal issues himself? Very interesting question. Just for those who don't know, we have a hot mic call that Gigi has on her website, and I hope. Uh, it's the clip that the COE has pulled, and I hope she's pulling more clips. Love you, COE. Love the work that you do, but we need some more clips. But anyway, in this clip, um, Donna is caught on what we call a hot mic. She doesn't know that the phone's disconnected, and she says, Dan told me to do this about leaving the country. Dan told me to do that about leaving the country. What about this question? Do you think she was forced into hiring him, or is this just an absurd notion? I don't think she was forced into hiring him. I think that she chose to hire him. And I think that uh, he wanted to come back to represent her. I think that as bad as Donald Donald wanted to hire Rashbaum, I think Rashbaum wanted to come back and represent Donna. Um, I think, look, there's obviously there's obviously there's a there's a line that we can't cross as lawyers. Right. We have ethical obligations, officers of the court, not to not to advise a client to flee a jurisdiction or flee from a war, right? Um, you can't aid or abed. That's 100% true. But I can tell you, as defense lawyers, our job is to get as close to the line without crossing it. 
right? That's that's our being honest. That's our job. Um, we can't advise a client, and I've never advised a client on how to leave the country, nor will I ever do so, right? But our job is to tell our client the consequences of leaving so, what happens, how it works, right? We're, we we have to answer those questions when they're posed to us. I imagine that those questions were asked of Mr. Rashbaum and he answered them. And that's where she gets the, he told me to do this from. And so I don't necessarily believe that um, there's anything unethical about the advice he gave um, or that he crossed any line regarding the professional rules of conduct, you know, as articulated by the Florida bar or, or the, you know, American bar association. I don't think he crossed any rules crossed any lines or broke any rules. What I do think is interesting though, is, you know, the question of why Rashbaum would come back. And for me, look, you know, from talking to Webster, you know, we come to one conclusion is that Rashbaum genuinely believed that he could walk Charlie. And you know, when you're a defense lawyer, you have to sell yourself on a case, but there's a still a, there, there's a level of realism that exists in every, but Rashbaum generally believed it. This wasn't, he didn't convince himself. He generally believed that he was going to, the jury was going to give him a not guilty and that Charlie was going to get in his car and they were going to drive back to Miami. I think that he believed it and Charlie believed it. I think that he thought he could get the state to, I, th I think that he thought he could sell this extortion theory. And so if you're rash bomb and you felt like you could walk Charlie, there's no question that Donna has the easier case, right? If you're a defense lawyer and you're picking which defendant has the best chances of getting acquitted, there's no question that, you know, Donna's case is, you know, apples to apples easier than Charlie's. Why? It's, it's because exactly what John just said and what we talked about a couple of shows ago. This whole extortion theory, now, you know, he doesn't have to sell that to the jury. Charlie had to sell. That's why we saw Charlie take the stand <clears throat> for hours. It was hard to watch because Charlie had to sell the, to the jury this idea of extortion. Donna doesn't have to sell that. Donna just has to sell that my son told me this and I believe my son. Not that it's true. You don't have to believe it's true. You could think it's a total lie. You just have to believe that I believe my son when he told me that. I think all four panelists on this call could sell that story a whole lot easier than we could sell the double extortion story. And so I think that for Rashbaum, this is his chance to maybe get a win. I don't think he's going to get a win. I think he's going to lose. I think there's mountains of evidence, but I think for Rashbaum. And so when I watched your show, that's what I saw. I saw a lawyer who felt like he could get a win this time. He thinks that he has the chance to walk Donna. And if he walks Donna, then that's his way to make up for losing Charlie, right? Mm -hmm. That's his way to stand back up to the state, to regain whatever credibility he's lost. And so I think that, I think he's wrong, but I think watching your show in just strategically, he believes that this is his chance to get a not guilty. Uh, Lewis, let me just ask you point blank. How important is it a win versus the money? I mean, John said it's not worth the money before. Um, do some lawyers say, hey, let me get this money, despite the fact that I'm probably going to lose a second time? Oh, for sure. There's no question about it. Let me be very clear. The answer is one word. Absolutely. Right. Look, you know, he's a part of a law firm. It's a business. He has partners. You know what I mean? You know, they have a meeting and they look at their goals. Right. And so there's no question when you get a chance. 
the best cases, and I've said it before, the best cases are the case defense-wise are the cases where there's a lot of media and there's a paying client. You usually don't get both. You usually get a paying client, but it's not a high-profile case, or you get a lot of media, but the person doesn't have any money, right? Because it's just gruesome facts. Rashbaum has, you know, he has both. It's the jackpot for a defense lawyer. You have a client who can pay all costs, who can pay all fees. And so in Florida, we use something called the JAC. And so on most of the, if you look at the other murder cases on Judge Everett's docket, if they want an investigator, they have to go to the JAC. If they want to do depositions and get transcripts, they have to go to the JAC. Because those defendants are indigent, they can't afford to pay the JAC advances their cost, right? And so, but here, if you're a rash bomb, you have a client who can pay for every transcript, every mile, every hotel, every meal, you know? This is a client that can pay for everything that you need. And plus, you get STS Nation talking about you on, you know, on a Tuesday night at 744. And so, you know, for rash bomb, I don't think, I don't think there's a loss. You know what I mean? I, I really don't. Because when he goes back to South Florida, he lost the case he was supposed to lose. If he wins, oh. he won an impossible case, right? And so I think that, from my perspective, he's – of course, nobody wants to lose. We, we're in it to win it. But I think strategically for him as a business model that he's not going to walk away from this case losing. I don't believe so. Uh, by the way, John Spilbor, uh, best guest on the show last night. Um, very savvy uh, criminal defense attorney. I'm going to get to the comment in a minute. But, uh, Gigi, uh, you and I were talking about this uh, before. Um, you know, a, a source was going to give us uh, about 100 new hours worth of jailhouse calls. As of right now, it appears that they're basically redundant from what we've already seen. Uh, do you think we will get new jailhouse calls? And anything that you've heard at all about Charlie, uh, as far as I know, he's still in Chipley waiting to be shipped out to a state prison. Well, I hope we get new calls because it's it's. I hate to say it's entertaining, but I mean, listening to these two go back and forth, it's like it's the same stuff every call, but I'm here for it. Uh, yeah, he's still in Chipley. I checked this morning, and I'm not sure. It seems like uh, sometimes they stay about a month, six weeks. Murdaugh was not uh, in his intermediate facility quite as long, but he's about 45 minutes from where I am. Yeah, so it's going to be interesting once he goes to the big house. It's a, it's a whole lot different than jail. I did a whole series on the jump from first-timers who, who get life, that jump from jail to prison. It ain't pretty. I just have to wonder how Charlie's going to fare in there. Yeah, um, apparently he's got to be under, uh, I forget the exact terminology, but, you know, special observation and basically a protective custody unit, protective management is what they call it. And apparently um, there's no space open. So I think they're waiting for a protective management slot to open up. Otherwise, if they ship him out, he requested that they ship him out and he goes uh, to something other than that. It could be... Uh, game over for charlie and i don't mean in a good way i mean in a very bad way john singer you're way smarter than me help me understand john's comment here defending the innocent often requires an attorney to prove a negative that's not what dan needs to do dan rashbaum needs to disprove a positive this is why i'll never do well in the sats because by the third sentence i'm already not paying attention are you following this yeah, I, I, I'm. I think so. I mean, I think what what John this is, is saying why he is, went to Georgetown and I didn't go. <laughs> no, I think what John is saying is is that the, the deck is. I mean, 
the deck is so stacked against Charlie that what they have to do here is they've got to take all the evidence, which is so strong, so compelling, so incriminating. I'm sorry, the, the evidence against Donna, not Charlie, that too, though. They, they have to take all that evidence and they have to somehow spin it in a way that is going to somehow get her an acquittal. So what, what she's saying is, is that the deck is so stacked right now against Donna that they're going to have to take all that evidence and they're going to have to spin it. But one thing I want to pick up on on what, on what Lewis said, which I thought was a good point about Rashbaum, I, I, I don't agree that there's no possibility of him being a quote-unquote loser here because if, he get, if, if, if what we think is going to happen happens, which is his client gets convicted in a very short time span, just like what happened with Charlie, it's not a great look for him. I, I don't care how strong the evidence is. When new clients are looking to hire high-priced attorneys and they, hear, they see two high-profile cases that were lost in such a dramatic fashion, in such a fast, quick verdict setting, I don't think that reflects well on him. I don't think clients say to themselves, you know, the evidence was so strong. We watched STS. We watched the trials. They're not going to have more than a passing understanding of this case. They're going to say he lost. It's a results-oriented business. You lose two cases that are all over the media, and you lose them as quickly as he did if, if Donna's comes to fruition the way we think. That's not a great look for him. That's not going to be good for his record. Has he brought in a lot of money to the partnership? Sure. Has he gotten a lot of exposure for himself and his firm? Yes. Two losses in a row, though, doesn't bode well for him or his firm. If I'm a criminal defendant and I'm looking to hire people, I'm looking for people who have, you know, better records, right? And and I and Dan's a great lawyer. There's no question he did a wonderful job um, in Charlie's trial. He's articulate. There was no division of labor. He did every witness by himself. He was prepared. His cross-examinations were effective, um, as Gigi said. Um, the state's case did not go in that well. This time, I mean, Junim Chinda was a was a nightmare for the state. Jeff Lacasse was not as good for the state as he had been in the prior two trials because of the snafu with the hearsay issue. They had to recall him. Um, they did make hay with Wendy, as the prosecution always does. But Dan did a good job. But he's going to end up with a second loss in a very short time frame in a very high profile case. That is not a good a good look for him or the firm at the end of the day. So that's why, if I were him. I would have stepped away. And, and by the way, what, what he said on your show was that he found it very depressing when he had the chance to eyeball the jury pool and then had the chance to listen to the voir dire that was conducted by Josh Dubin. I don't know why he was depressed about it. The case had been percolating for seven years. There had already been two trials. There had already been so much media coverage on the case. Everybody and their mother thought and thinks the Adelsons are guilty. Somehow he thought he was going to walk into a jury room and think that there were people that were receptive to his case that somehow had never heard about the Adelson case in Tallahassee. I, I mean, come on. That, that, that to me, was uh, I, I, that was one of the more unbelievable things he said on the show. 
Uh, Nikki here, uh, coods or cuds. I'm going to go with coods. I always say, uh, super sticker. Thank you very much. Why do they think Rash showed up in Tallahassee this time? It seems to be part of his failed PR tour. I know the answer to that because Alex Morris, who is now either co-counsel, but, uh, definitely counsel from Tallahassee is in the murder, uh, middle of a murder trial and could not be there. And counsel has to be there. And that is why Dan Rashbaum was, uh, present for that. Uh, COE, is it the bottom one or the top one, uh, the fleeing one with Dan, uh, the uh, hot mic? I might get yelled at again. It's the one that has the audio on it. Uh, I see two clips. Don't they both have audio? Nope, only one does. I'll just pull it up. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's listen to this. What they're thinking up there. I don't know if we'll make it out in time. I really don't. So Dan said, you might, or you might do all of it, get to the airport, and they'll stop us. And that could happen. It could happen. I don't know. But it's worth a try. Uh, Dan, I got to say, this doesn't look too good either, what they call a bad fact. Um, from Patreon member Bobby, is it you uh, that she's referring to? And did you have prior knowledge of her flight? So uh, I'm going to read what I've written here so I don't screw this up. Um, so I'm going to pause this here just for a quick second. So just to set it up, uh, the COE pulled it up. This is a call from Pretty Lies and Alibis, Gigi McKelvey, who's on the show, where it is a call Donna thinks that she has hung up on. She's speaking to Charlie Adelson uh, from jail after his conviction and before she decides to take off to Vietnam. And she starts talking about Dan, saying, hey, Dan told me to do this. Dan told me uh, to do that. And suddenly, Dan Rashbaum has to pull out a sheet of paper. Gigi McKelvey, we don't see that very often, where a an attorney is reading a prepared statement. How, what do you think are the optics of this for Dan in this particular case? Well, I'm not an attorney, but I would think it's a very fine line for him to walk. But can I just say... She can't hang up an iPhone, so I have a lot of hope that all of the electronics they've seized <laughs> as part of the search warrants are going to have some nuggets in there that may strengthen this case even further against her. Although Rashbaum did come out and say unequivocally that uh, there's nothing on her iPhone, but I'm not sure how he knows that unless he's got the evidence. But he, I asked him about the other devices, and he would not answer. So it'd be, it's just kind of strange to me that they would already have the digital forensics for her iPhone, but not for the other devices. And he would know about that. I don't know, but he's yeah, we got we got two laptops, two MacBook Pros or two MacBooks. We got iPads. Come on now. She can't hang up a phone. Let's just sit and wait. It's coming. Yeah. So he's about to read from this statement. Uh, let's play it out and then we'll get the lawyer. <clears throat> here. Because uh, I anticipated this this question would come. Uh, I can't talk about what I said or didn't say uh, because it's privileged. Uh, what I can say um, is that at the time Donna Adelson went to the airport, she was a free woman. What I can say is there was no indictment to anyone's knowledge. We know now there wasn't one. Um, there was no grand jury that we knew was convened. We know now it wasn't convened till after. Uh, and there was no arrest warrant that was known of. In fact, uh, we know the arrest warrant, I think, was just obtained hours before the flight going to stop it there and get Lewis's take up to this point. I mean, Lewis, 
This is a little tough to watch, even as the interviewer in this interview, um, he's caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, He's basically saying that, you know, she wasn't technically his client at this very moment. Uh, You know, he was offering some advice. Is this towing a high rope um, with potential danger below? Yes, I think he's on the safe side. Right. So I do think he's I do think, like, like I said earlier, there's a line. Our job as lawyers is to not cross it. Right. But let's not be, you know, we don't, when I say get close, we don't play with fire, but to be effective, you have to not be afraid to give your client real advice. And so what I think, I think he's on the safe side of the professional rules of conduct as, as articulated and, and stated by the ABA, American Bar Association, and the Florida Bar. I think that what he's saying here is that, look, at the time, I might have, I might have said anything, which if I did, I can't tell you what I said. Let's be very clear. Here's the background that existed and here's what didn't exist. And I think those things that he's saying didn't exist are the exact reasons he's on the safe side of the line. Right. And that she wasn't indicted. There was no grand jury. There was no warrant. There was no subpoena. There was no court order limiting her travel. And so she was a free woman. So any advice he might have gave her was advice he was giving to a free woman that was not under current court order or threat of future court order. And so I think that he prepared a statement on this because he knew he had to say exactly what the right words. This wasn't the moments of freestyle. It mattered that he say the right thing to ensure that he stayed on the safe line of the professional rules of conduct. And I think it was smarter than the prepare statement. It's one thing to be a lawyer, but as John knows, you know, all lawyers, our main goal is to not have the bar association, to not have the bar to not have the ABA send us letters asking us to explain things or sit for interviews. You know, it, it's a lawyer's worst fear. And so I think that he wanted to make sure he didn't get a letter from the Florida bar and he, and he didn't get a subpoena to a grievance committee. And he was smart to do so. John. Yeah. I, I'm in accord with Lewis on the fact that he was on the right side of the law. Uh, there, uh, you know, there was no subpoena, for her, there was no warrant. Um, as far as he knew, um, she was a free person, a free citizen to do as she pleased. Whether it was smart of him or not to opine on extradition or whether she could make it to the airport, that's not the question. The question is, did he violate any ethical canons? The answer is no. But instead of reading a prepared statement on your show, just don't answer the question. Yeah. Right? Because he's accentuating and highlighting the issue. You are not the government, Joel. You are a podcast host, a very good one. He doesn't have to answer your question. He can just say, look, I'm going to take a pass on that one. But now then, but now we veer into the other issue, which is whether he'll be a witness at the trial. So let's just delve into that for a second. He was not representing Donna at the time that she was speaking to Charlie on those jailhouse calls. He had he was no longer representing. Wendy, uh, sorry, uh, Donna and Harvey as of the date of Charlie's trial and in the immediate aftermath. He only became Donna's lawyer after she was arrested. So in that stub period where we've heard the jailhouse calls, post-conviction, pre-Donna arrest, he is Charlie's lawyer, not hers. There's no attorney-client privilege there. So he could theoretically be called to testify as to what he spoke to Donna about. Now, Donna is going to say, presumably, that she wasn't fleeing 
uh, and that was somehow emblematic of, of guilt or consciousness of guilt, she's going to say what Rasbaum said. She was going on a one-way uh, adventure to clear her head, which is ludicrous and, and foolish, but that's what she's going to say. Now, she's, they're, they're going to ask her about the advice that was given to her and who's the Dan. She's going to say that Dan told me that, yeah, sure, buy a one-way. She's going to pin it all on him, and then he becomes a witness. Now, whether the state is going to want to call him or not is a different story, because if they did... What would happen? There could be a mistrial. It could delay things. It could be in the middle of the case and it could adjourn it. All kinds of things could happen that could delay justice from occurring. So at the end of the day, do I think Dan Rashbaum was going to be a witness in this case? No. Do I think, though, that he put himself in a very bad situation by accepting this representation and potentially being a, wit being a witness at the same time, which would eventuate in his having to withdraw as counsel? Yes, he put himself in a very bad situation. Uh, by so, the way, John, John of Spielboard, real quick, she said the exact same thing. She said there's, he just he should have just said no comment, can't answer. He didn't do that. Go ahead, Lewis. And so I think that it's probably where John and I disagree. I think, but I think it's not just John and I disagree. I think this is going to be a major legal issue. I think it might be the legal issue that you know is going to turn the case. The state before the trial is going to have to produce a witness list, right? right. And that's when when the state produces a witness list. That's when we're going to know whether or not the state intends to call Rashbaum. Because if they do, because any witness in which you can anticipate their testimony, even for impeachment, you have to list as a witness. And I think it's clear here that the state can anticipate Rashbaum's testimony in this issue that John just eloquently explained. And so if the state list him on if the state list him as a witness before trial, this is going to be an issue that Judge Everett decides before this case ever goes to a trial, before a jury's ever sworn, this is going to be a motion in limine that Judge Everett decides on if the state lists him as a witness. I think we both agree on that. I think the part where I think the part where I disagree, and I think it's just not him and I, I think it's going to be lawyers. This is a legal issue. And I think that's going to be one that's not there's not a lot of precedent on. I think it's going to it's going to be a really close call because he's right. I agree with him that at the time of the trial that. He represented Charlie Adelson and that that was his client and that theoretically he wasn't retained or engaged as Donna's representation formally until her arrest or subsequent to her arrest. Right. But I think that, you know, it's 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 not just we're not just our conversations with our clients are not just protected It's also conversations with prospective clients. Right. Which means that if. If you came to me, Joel, for a consultation because you needed help with the legal issue, with a legal issue, and you consulted with me, our conversation, you know, the old idiom is you have to pay a dollar, right? Not true. You don't have to pay me a dollar. Even without paying me a dollar, our conversation <laughs> is still privileged. I will take the dollar, but the, our conversation is still privileged. And so I think it's gonna, and, and it's gonna be an interesting question, right? Is whether or not those conversations with Donna were considered consultations as such, whereas they would be afforded the privilege. If the, And I don't know the answer. I mean, and I'm not suggesting when I say I disagree that I know the answer. What I'm suggesting is I don't believe there is a clear answer. I think that this is going to be a close call issue because the law is clear that consultations are protected. That's that's law. The law is older than me. But when you have active representation with Charlie, right? And Donna currently and representing Donna is a conflict. 
right? And so the real legal issue is, which is why Donna had to sign a conflict waiver, and which is what we saw, what we saw a verbal version of that conflict waiver, I'm sure that she's already signed in court. If a lawyer has a conflict that hasn't been waived and that lawyer consults with a prospective client, is that considered protective or would that be protected under attorney-client privilege? If the court finds that the conversations are protected under the attorney-client privilege, it's going to be a problem because now the state has to argue whether or not they can overcome the privilege, which is, you know, extremely high burden. If the state, if the court decides that it's not privilege, then of course, you know, the court would most likely grant the state's motion for him to be on a witness list, deny the defendant's objections or motion to limiting, you know, to strike him from the witness list. But so I, I don't disagree as to say that I know the answer. I disagree that I think it's going to become a tougher legal issue on whether or not those conversations were privileged and or protected based on the consultation. So I, and I let me just jump in there. I would I would I, I agree with that. Um, I will say in New York and in California, where I'm a bar member, the precedent is very clear that if there's an ongoing representation of a client, as there was here with Charlie, and you had a client, a former client, like Rashbaum had here in Donna, who then became a client again, that, that wouldn't be that would not be considered protected. And I don't even know if we could presuppose that that was even a consultation. What we do know is during that stub period week. Charlie was talking to Rashbaum. Rashbaum was talking to Donna. Donna would convey messages to Rashbaum. And then Charlie and Rashbaum would have attorney-client privilege communications on a private phone. So Donna was in consultation, if you will, with Rashbaum, but not for a prospective attorney-client relationship at that point. It was more in the sense of shepherding information to Charlie. So as, as Louis said, this is a very complicated legal issue that's going to take factual exploration. And it's for this very reason that Rashbaum should not have accepted the representation because it can get extremely muddy. And lawyers don't like to put themselves in this sort of a conundrum, right? Where you're seeking ethics counsel, you're getting ethics opinions. You may be, we all can agree that he might be a witness. We don't know if he will be, but he could be. The mere fact that he could be a witness would lead 99% of lawyers to not accept the representation because of the optics of it, because of the potential for conflict, because of the potential for it being much more of an encumbered process than it should be. It doesn't do the client any favors. So again, I think Dan's a great guy, lots of friends in common, have heard nothing but good things about him. I thought he acquitted himself very well at the last trial. I don't think coming on the show was his finest moment. I don't think some of the things he said on the show reflected well on him. And I think at the end of the day, the representation is going to be a financial benefit to him and his firm, but is going to have the deleterious ramifications going forward because a loss is a loss and it doesn't look good to potential clients. Uh, Gigi, in light of all this, it has me wondering, what is the craziest thing that you've seen while covering a trial? And if, if Dan Rashbaum was called as a witness, I mean, this is already such a high profile case, but the news nations, the law and crimes, the court TVs of the world. I mean, this would become a mega headline that the lead defense counsel is now going to take the stand in his own case. Right. I mean, it'd be crazy. 
Yeah, you know, honestly, the cases that I've sat in, I mean, nothing major's happened. I sat in Jody Arias, Colorado Theater Shooter back in the day. I mean, everything's run very smoothly in the cases I've been in. I think, honestly, the most bizarre moment was when Lori Vallow was giving her statement before her sentencing. We all were just, our mouths were wide open and... The thing she was saying about her dear friend, Tammy, I was just waiting on Tammy's sister to breach that little divider there and start pounding on her. But that's really the most odd thing I've ever seen. I haven't seen anything with attorneys like this. So I'm very, and I'm learning so much from these men. I mean, they're just so knowledgeable. So I'm just sitting here soaking it up like a sponge. But yeah, I'm I'm going to get yelled at. I'm going to get yelled at for not giving you more uh, questions, but I got two lawyers. No, it's here, okay. I'm, so I'm, I feel like happens. I'm in class here, so I'm enjoying yeah. it. <laughs> this is, this and it's a good thing awesome. I have my mic on mute because my cat just hacked up a fur ball. It sounded like he dropped the beat, you know? <laughs> Sounds like when they drop the beat in the club when they start that. Uh, here's a COE here. Uh, in case you missed it, Pretty Lies and Alibis has spent weeks reviewing 30-plus hours of jailhouse recordings and thousands of pages of J- Donna's jail activity sub and check her out at pretty lies and alibis uh for all of that yeah i think we should all go in together and send her a bunch of spoons so if you watch that episode of mine you'll (laughs) see there was some drama with some spoons yeah i did see that she put some uh, on her commissary that'd be be uh interesting uh this is a question that i find kind of fascinating lewis if the adelsons ignored the bump and didn't start talking do you think that they would have been arrested Yes. I think when we look at this cases, I think even when you, so I think the answer is yes. I think that um, this was bound to happen. You know, first of all, they did it. And, you know, you can only keep something secret for so long. Number one. Number two, I think that the, the Tallahassee police department and the FBI uh, were so rightfully dedicated to this case that if it wasn't the bump, it would have been something else. What what we see with even look, we saw the we saw the body cam that was released. We saw, you know, Pat Sanford at the airport. You know what I mean? This is the same guy who's testifying in a trial who's been a case agent from the very beginning at the airport himself. Right. When clearly this is the FBI. You just imagine the outreach they have. That could have been anybody they could have sent to do that. Right. But the fact that he was there himself, I think, is telling and shows us what's been the pattern this entire case. Right. Which is that you know, I have no doubt if it wasn't the bump, it would have been something else. What else? I don't know. Right. But I think it would have been something else that they would have found. They would have discovered. Look, this family talks a lot. <laughs> you know, they love to talk. They like to talk on phones. They like to talk at parks. They like to talk on benches. They like to talk at restaurants. You know, they like to talk in emails. They're talkers. Right. And so they were going to talk in the in the FBI and TPD was going to be listening. You know, they could have someone they could have someone at the park bench, could have someone working for the dental practice one way or another. There would have been some way for them to get this information. So I'm confident they would have still been arrested. To you, uh, John Singer, by the way, we're looking at a video, of course, from Law and Crime of Donna Adelson's arrest. But from Sherry's news, friend of the show, interesting question again, and then I'll play out the rest of that sound. Do you believe uh, Mrs. Ruth Markell may be called as a witness on the problems with not seeing the children due to Donna's interference. Do we see Ruth Markell? I, I don't believe we will. And I, I don't think that it's particularly relevant. Um, it's relevant to all of us that, that Ruth and Phil have been denied access to the children. 
because of Wendy and and previously her Donna, but it's not a relevant legal point to uh, whether or not Donna's guilty. Um, I will say that I found the arrest footage to be um, riveting in, uh, in a lot of ways. Again, she had oh, offered to surrender. Didn't mean to play over you, but uh, while we're we'll get back. To- John, I want to get back to the arrest in one second. Um, Bonnie Lee Lopez, I love that John is smiling, watching Donna get cuffed. But let's let's play this out, and then John, I'm going to circle back. To sure. You. sure, sure. At any point in time from 2016 on, uh, I know that because I had made uh, that offer. Um, she did nothing wrong by going to the airport. Okay. Now I cannot tell you what I advised her, what I knew, or what I didn't know. But what I can tell you for certain is that I acted within my ethical obligations. Um, And what I can tell you for certain is that no crimes were committed by her going to the airport. And that's why she wasn't charged with any sort of crimes related to that. Um, That's what I can tell you at this point in time. And Dan, you're going to see some. Uh, And there you go, John Singer. Uh, if you want to round out your thoughts on that. And then uh, what did you find so intriguing about Donna's arrest video? Well, I, I don't have any further thoughts on on the ethics issue. I think we we covered it. I think that he shouldn't have answered your question. Um, I think we can all agree on that, that it was there was no upside to him in doing so. I also agree. And Lewis, I think we're in agreement that uh, th- there wasn't any ethical violations that he committed. Um, he's, he smartly sought out ethics counsel and, um, I'm sure he, he had a pit in his stomach when he heard the jailhouse call because he knew at that point that, uh oh, like it's so close to the bone, you know, but that he had to go seek ethics counsel. But at the end of the day, he was on the right side. As far as the video footage of the arrest, I mean, just the calmness, like when they first tell her you're being arrested, I mean, again, she, she had an inkling she was going to be arrested because she went to the airport with a one-way ticket. But just when they said to her, you're under arrest for the, for the murder of Dan Markell, she said, oh, come on. It was like they had taken away her comfort seat, right, from Florida to New York. It was like one of those, like, oh, come on, you're going to arrest me? Like, it, it just her whole affect was so peculiar. Um, and again, you know, maybe it was because she had this inkling. Um, that she was going to be arrested. But I, I think that normal people, non-sociopathic people would have reacted in a very different way to being arrested, to the finality of it all, to this coming to fruition after seven years of being under um, under investigation, worrying about this all the time, whether you're going to get the knock on the door and then having it come to fruition, you would think there'd be somewhat of a more of a reaction. And that's just her. I mean, they're just such sick, demented people that, I mean, it just, it, the more you listen to them, the more you observe them, the more that comes out. And hopefully Gigi, which she alluded to before, is right that there's stuff on the MacBooks and on the iPad that we'll see even more, you know, into her psyche. But the, the more you learn about these people, that just the sicker they are. Um, what struck me, uh, as being very kind of conspicuous here, Gigi McKelvey, is that in this arrest video that we're watching, she's told, well, you're under the arrest of Dan Markell, but there's never a protest. There's never an I didn't do it. There's never an I'm innocent. Did that strike you at all in watching this? 
It did. And you have to wonder, just maybe in the back of her mind, I mean, they've had to look over their shoulder really in a big way since 2016 when those first, when, when the bump started happening. And then, of course, after the arrest, you have to wonder, maybe even with her and Charlie, is there almost some sort of a weird relief that it's over, that it happened? And, okay, maybe she thinks she's going to walk out of there like Charlie did. But, you know, it's kind of like you dread something for so long and then when it happens, it's like, okay, we're here. And now I got to deal with it. I don't know. That was just kind of my thought is, but then I, I think too, she just in her mind, like Charlie thinks that she'll be back with Harvey in a few months when she gets her speedy trial and this will just all go away. And maybe, you know, we'll see what the jury says, but I've always wondered about the relief part. Yeah. Um, certainly some delusion lingering around this family. Uh, I don't think uh, now that she's behind bars, I think the chance of her uh, ever seeing the light of day again. And this is crazy because this is her last moments of freedom, but it hurt the chance of her seeing the light of day again, I think are uh, very limited. Lewis, do you think that uh, judge Everett will now have to issue some sort of gag order uh, to keep Dan Rashbaum from doing more media? Is that a possibility? There is a concern, right? Because obviously as lawyers, we don't want to do what we call taint the jury. Right. And so normally prior to an arrest in, or in, in a civil case, I, a good portion of my practice is civil. Prior to me filing a lawsuit, we can go speak to the media, make statements, do whatever we want. But once we file a lawsuit or once our client is arrested, that's like the culmination point in both those instances. It's almost like as lawyers, we stop because we don't want the assertion to be made that we were somehow trying to taint the jury pool. Um, do I think that Judge Everett is going to do it sua sponte? So sua sponte mean, meanings on, means on his own accord. I don't think Judge Everett is going to do it sua sponte. Um, I think that the only way we would ever see Judge Everett issue a gag order is if the state made a motion for such, which would be their right. Um, do I think the state's going to make a motion? I think Georgia and Jack are going to get to, and Sarah Dugan are going to get together and decide to make a motion for a gag order. I don't think so. Um, it's just not their style. You know, it's just not how it's not how Jack, Georgia or Sarah Dugan have have practiced, you know what I mean? Like in, in this, in this market, gag orders aren't common. You know, I can't, I can't think of the last time I saw one on a case. And so they're not in this market and this judge with these judges in this circuit, they're not common, but I think, so it would only happen if the state asks for, it. I don't anticipate the state asking for it. Not at this point. Now, if he, now if he goes on a press tour, right. I think if, if we see more than what we saw in his one interview with you, if we see a lot more than that and him just going out on a campaign, essentially, I think that he would essentially force the state's hand. But absent him going on a campaign on the issue, I don't see I, I don't see the state following a, a gag order. I could be wrong. I, it's just it's not traditional. You know, uh, if, John, if I were if I were the ahead, state, John. I have to tell you, if I were the state, I, I wouldn't make a motion, not not only because it's it doesn't sound like it's commonplace in that jurisdiction, but. Rashbaum gave them so much information with which to work on your show. I mean, he commented on all those individual pieces of evidence and he gave the state, um, you know, his spin on it. I would keep letting him speak. I mean, and, and again, I, I don't think he did his client or himself any favors with his appearance. Um, but more importantly, you can glean information. You can divine certain things from what he said. If I'm the state, I keep letting him get on there. And, and keep letting him go on this press tour. You're going to learn different nuggets at, at each interval. Uh, by the way, we did reach out to Georgia Kaplman, who declined the request for an interview, but declined it very, very nicely. 
and promise that you will come on when this case um, writ large, to use a singer term, is resolved. <laughs> uh, Lauren S. here. They cannot arrest Wendy, John Singer, before having her testify for Donna and Charlie. John Singer, will Wendy be next? Yes or no? Yes, but not until the trial is over. I mean, it's they, they've taken a methodical approach. As we've seen, it's pick off one at a time. And it's a great point by Lauren. Um, they need Wendy. They really do. Wendy was a critical witness in all three cases to establish the nastiness of the divorce, how, where things were in the divorce proceeding, the, the grandmother motion that was pending at the time of Dan's um, murder, different bits of information about the underlying marriage. They need all that from Wendy. As, as repugnant as Wendy is and as much as Georgia Kaplan hates her, it's so obvious from listening to the colloquy between them, she's got to call her. She's got to call June Mchinda too. These are, these are people she abhors. You can tell, but they need Wendy at this stage. Um, last night, Lewis, and I feel bad for Gigi because she's caught between two lawyers, but we're both kind of taking this all in right now. Um, but, but Lewis, someone on the show last night said, Hey, if I'm Harvey and I'm Wendy, I'm going to Vietnam not necessarily <laughs> Vietnam. Do you think um, you ca you called the fact early on that you thought there were eyes on Donna and then she was arrested. Do you think there are eyes on both Harvey and Wendy right now and some something in the system that would trigger an alert if they tried to leave the country at this point? Yes. You know what I mean? Look, I think, look, this is the FBI. You know what I mean? This is the proverbial <laughs> big brother. You know, this is not some, you know, um, this is not some, you know, small town police department, Right. And so I think that it, from the very beginning, the FBI has been on this case, you know, from almost from the very beginning. And what that tells us is the FBI brings its resources and its outreach, its umbrella. And so I have no doubt that part and you don't need it. So when I say eyes, you don't need a case agent to be actively watching, you know, Wendy and Donna. This is the age of technology, right? There are systems that exist in which you know, that are controlled by the state that the, that the FBI doesn't need a warrant to access, right? So the FBI can access databases that that it has access to or controls under law enforcement agreements without a warrant, right? And so, for example, we know that, you know, TSA is housed under DHS and that DHS is an FBI partner. And so the FBI can have access to DHS and TSA databases without necessarily getting a warrant as long as it's for law enforcement purposes, right? And so it, it, with that information, when we say the eyes, I mean that the umbrella of the FBI is most assuredly there's a flag, a check, something in their system, which I don't know or don't understand, um, that is watching uh, that is watching Harvey um, and watching Wendy. I think there's something watching them both. And I will say this, you know, what 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 was more surprising to me in that video when I watched it, the video of the arrest was Harvey's behavior. You know, you know, I, I, we hadn't really had a lot of contact with Harvey. You know, he wasn't he wasn't really brought up in our case a whole lot. In in, in Charlie's case, in Magwana's case, his name came up, you know, a couple of times, but his name, he wasn't a frequent flyer, right? He didn't have a lot of frequent flyer miles in any of the trials. And so what we see in Harvey with his behavior, his demeanor is, you know, I think Harvey really, Donna knew this was coming. You know, she was like, really, this is where you're going to do it. But I think for Harvey, he was like, you know, 
you're making a mistake. The second mistake, I think what we're seeing is a older gentleman who really doesn't believe any of the state's evidence, a person who doesn't believe that his wife or his son had anything to do with this, a person who believes that they were that they're being targeted. And I think that we can see from his behavior that he really is. You know, we talked about the fragile state that Donna was in and how we saw her during her first hearing. But if you watch that video, you know, you see that Harvey is an extreme fragile state. You know what I mean? Like what Donna, there is a real concern on Donna's face about how Harvey's going to get home. Like, and that's, you know, that's like, that wasn't, you got to think about it. She's being arrested for first degree murder. Her son was just sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And she's being arrested on the same exact charges that her son was just given life in prison with no parole. And in that moment, what she's thinking is, how does my, how does Harvey get home? That's not what I'm thinking. You know what I mean? I'm married. I have a wife. I'm <laughs> married. But in that moment, I'm not thinking, how does my wife get home? I'm thinking about, what am I going to see freedom again? When am I going to ever get on a plane again? When am I going to eat my own meal? I mean, there's there's a thousand thoughts we would think before we thought, how does our significant other get home? I hope I'm not the only person to believe that because I'll just be the bad young husband. No, but- no, no. And I, I also think, by the way, because everyone has chimed in, at least early on, saying, look, she's not going to make it to trial. She's old. She's 73 is not old. My mother's turning 85 and the woman's bossing me around. She's at my house. She's doing running errands, has weight. And Donna um, is in shape. She's lean. She's strong. You see that perp walk that never ends with the arrest through the airport. <laughs> I mean, she's moving at a super fast pace. She's in her tennis shoes. She's in good shape. She could be around for a lot longer. Gigi, Wendy Adelson, John Singer thinks she's next after this trial. Again, I mean, forget Rashbaum being called as a witness. Don, uh, Wendy Adelson gets arrested. What does that do to the high profile nature of this case? It just blows it up, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. This this just goes like astronomical in the media and everywhere. But you know, a lot of people had theorized the arrest would come before Donna's trial, and then they do a joint trial like they did with Sid Grado and Katie. You know, I don't know that that would be the way they would do it. But, yeah, you have to imagine Wendy's probably looking over her shoulder a whole lot for Harvey after the arrest. If I was him, I would have just went home and took, like, the phone off the hook and enjoyed the silence, you know, because if for the first time, like, it's quiet in his house. He doesn't have Charlie calling every 10 seconds, and, you know, Donna's gone, but... Yeah, I was curious, and I've seen some people theorize, is his health not good? You know, is there something going on there that made her so concerned? But I I have to think that Wendy's got to be next. You know, I I know some people do think that maybe she was out of the loop, but come on, nobody knew that man's schedule. There's a million things, you know. I look at the way she was dressed to go to lunch with her friends at a very nice restaurant. She looked like she was doing housework. This is a woman we've seen in, like, amazing, beautiful dresses. I mean, she's a beautiful woman. You can't dispute that. And like she was just thrown together and goes by the house. It's, come on, man. It's just it's too, too many coincidences. I, I do think she's next. It's just a matter of before Donna's trial or after. I kind of think after. Put her on the stand. And George is like a master chess player. She knows what she's doing. I said this about Donna before her arrest. If I'm Wendy, I'm on a slow canoe to Cuba right now, <laughs> going from Cuba to I don't know where, but getting the hell out of here. Uh, B. Allen. Uh, John Singer, I'm curious about this. I, uh, during the interview Rashbaum did with me, he said one of the reasons he really likes Donna is she reminds him so much of his own mother. He took a lot of heat on social media for that. Um, 
is that a was was that a a bad analogy to make publicly at least even if she's just like him her, her. I, I mean yes i mean that was crazy <laughs> that was insane i mean what, she's charged with first degree murder she wrote those insane emails where she referenced hitler youth Dan's Jewish, I'm Jewish, you're Jewish, Joel. We, I think we all found those to be particularly repugnant, um, as anybody would, Jewish or non-Jewish, but it probably resonates more with us. Um, I just think that at the end of the day, he was trying to humanize her. He knows that potential jurors could be watching this show, right? They've, they've already had three trials. The jury pool is shrinking as, as we go on to the fourth trial. So he's trying to humanize her, but you can do it in a way that doesn't make you look cringy, which is what what he really did. The other thing I thought when, when he talked about how much he liked her and how he very rarely cares for his clients, that, that also struck me um, for a couple of reasons. One, if I'm Charlie, I'm like, well, what about me? Like, you know, if you ever heard that interview, he'd be like, well, you didn't care for me. He, he, and if I were any of his other clients, I'd be like, wait a minute. You're waxing poetic about Donna. You're saying that it is very, very rare for you to care about a client with the intensity that you care for Donna with, right? With the, that he cares for Donna. And, and if I'm another one of his clients, I'm like, wait a minute. You know, what about me? Like, didn't you care about me? Like, I, I think that, that the whole, the whole um, praiseworthy section of that interview about Donna was just very bizarre. I get what he's trying to do. I get that he's trying to get ahead of the jury pool. He didn't do it in Charlie's case. He saw how bad it was um, for the Adelsons in Tallahassee. So I get he's trying to do it differently here with local counsel and trying to influence potential jurors, get his side of the story out. But you, you got to do it in a different way than he did it. Shout out to Phantom 6000, who I've just been uh an email exchange with and uh, his friends, Randy Couture and Boss Root. And for any fight fans, you will know who that is. Uh, two of the best fighters of all time. And uh, Phantom 6000 knows him. Here's the last piece of sound. I don't even know what this is, but let's play it anyway. Hopefully it's not the COE yelling at me. Um, you, you know what AI can do today. By the way, I, I, I don't want to get political in any way, but just uh, using AI as an example... Apparently, Joe Biden was calling everyone in New Hampshire, telling people not to vote for any Republicans, but it was all AI, someone hoaxing and having Joe Biden's voice call voters. So hopefully this is not the COE voicing this and yelling at me. Let's listen. I think that uh, the world sees these people through a particular lens. I understand why they see them through the lens, but the reality is. This is just so we know, because now I know what it is. He's talking about Don Adelson and how we all see her through the wrong lens. Uh, here we go. Is they don't know Donna Adelson. Um, they haven't been in a room with her. They haven't spent time with her. They don't know what type of person she is. And so um, they're assuming certain things. And uh, many of those things are just completely false. Um, can can you so, give us an example? Can you give us a couple of examples? Look. I have spent uh, a considerable amount of time with Donna over the years. She is caring, loving. Um, she is probably the most polite client I've ever had in 25 years of doing this. Uh, she's bright, but um, not analytical. Um, she's kind. Um, she's someone I like. 
she's someone I care about. I would go so far to say that. Um, and that's, that's odd for me in representing a client. Um, Hey, Joel, you're on mute. I am muted. I figured it out just now. Oh my God. I would say he's gushing about someone who was just arrested for first degree murder. Should he have been a little more cautious with some of the adjectives, how bright she is, how smart she is, what a wonderful woman. I mean, what do you think, Gigi? I'm sorry. Could you repeat the question? I have a, a psycho cat like attacking my leg and yelling at me right now. You think that uh, Gigi should have been a little bit more, uh, not Gigi. Do you think that the whole show is falling apart right now? Uh, do you think that Rashbaum, he's gushing about Donna. I mean, he's absolutely saying how smart she is. What a wonderful woman. People misunderstand her. But she's a woman who is just arrested for first degree murder. Should he be a little less effusive about the language he's using uh, about her? It's just going to come back and bite him as it has online in reaction to to that that statement right there. Yeah, I mean, it's a little weird to hear. Like you say, first degree murder. We've read these crazy emails from her to Wendy telling her really just running the show. She's not a sweet old lady. She's not some sweet little grandma. She's a control freak. And I think she's a psychopath. So it's it's just, you know all of us and who have watched these trials. And, and for me, it's been kind of like a crash course, but it didn't take me long to figure out Donna's got major issues. And to hear her talk about like, she's some grandma sitting on the couch knitting. It just, it doesn't fit. Uh, we're going to wrap up in a moment. Uh, Peachy, where'd she go? Peachy Williams. He sounds like he's confessing his love. I love the name Peachy Williams, Rachel J. He's really trying hard to make her look good. That came across as very disingenuous. Let's play out the rest of this sound. If I was paying billable hours to John Singer right now, I would be broke for the rest of my life. Luckily, I'm not being forced to do that. But here we go. Got to get these guys off soon. Uh, but in general, what I would say to you is uh, this is a different case, right? With different viewpoints and different reasons why uh, I'm willing to answer questions about Donna um, because mm -hmm. I think there's there's so much there's look there's so much out there in the seven plus years of the media covering this, um, more particularly the YouTube media and the podcasters um, that frankly have already uh, convicted these people. They're presumed guilty um, in the public's eyes, not presumed innocent. And so um, I guess I'm up here to try to paint a different picture of them, a picture that I know to be true. I know I know who Donna Adelson is because I, I know I've spent time with. Them. Uh, you know, Lewis, um, there is a point to be made there. And we talked about this on last night's show. I'm just curious to get your take on this. Social media, YouTubers, everything that's out there, there is sort of a presumption of guilt. I mean, there is kind of a, a mob mentality sometimes uh, dealing with some of these cases. People get on a bandwagon. Uh, do you think he makes a valid point there? I agree with the point, not for this case, right? I'm biased in that um, I, I'm part of the band of people that believes that she's guilty. And um, so I'm biased and I can admit that. It, look, this is this is this is new. This is modern age litigation. 
And it's scary. You know what I mean? The idea that, you know, you have guests on the show from, you know, you know, Africa and Australia, right? That they could be from places so far away, but be commenting on their belief of Donna, Wendy, you know, Harvey's guilt, <laughs> Charlie's guilt. That's the modern age we live in, right? Where um, I went to the gym. I went to my local gym here in Tallahassee to go work out, which I need to go do more. And one of the front desk people stopped me and said, I saw you on STS. You know, I think I, I, I think the Adelsons are, you know, and express their views, right? This is a potential juror, right? You have, yeah, Joel, you have fans at Premier's Gym. But <laughs> I, um, I think that, you know, this is the reality. And so it, as a criminal defense lawyer, it is a little bit scary and unfortunate. You know what I mean? I think it's a, it, it, it's tough for what we believe the notions of due process, presumed innocent until, until proven, you know, presumed innocent until proven guilty, right? Has been, you know, a bedrock of our country and our constitution. And, and, you know, that's challenging, you know, in these, and it's always been an issue, but people were sitting on their couch thinking you're guilty by themselves. They weren't in a chat talking to thousands of other people, potential jurors, telling them the, the reasons they thought you were guilty. And listening to, you know, me and John, who's way in New York and I'm way in Tallahassee, can share our views on a case with Gigi, all, you know, from different parts of the country. And so I think that this is a new reality. I do take a point of privilege to make one thing clear. because I think there might have been some confusion. I do not believe that Harvey is somehow an innocent bystander in this. OK, I want to make sure that when I'm telling, given my reaction of what I saw in that video, I think that Harvey knew about it. I think the entire family knew about it. I think this was a family plan and the family carried it out to kill Professor Markell. But I would say this, you will be surprised of what clients can convince them, of what people can convince themselves of. If you tell yourself you're innocent enough, eventually you'll start believing it. Even though, even though it's clear that you did it, people will start believing firmly at their core, in their, you know, in their marrow that they're innocent even though we know in the evidence is, I mean, Charlie on that stand for eight hours seemed like a guy who thought he was innocent. We know that that extortion story was crazy. I mean, it's crazy. Um, but I just want to make it very clear that I believe that the family was all a part of it and that they all played a role in Professor Markell's murder. Uh, very well said. On that note, we could go on for hours here. Look at what a kind comment this is from Jill. Uh, I would tend to think Larry King probably did a better job than I. May he rest in peace. Uh, but he asked, he had short questions, short, pithy questions, unlike Anderson Cooper, who takes 13 news cycles to get a question out. Drives me nuts. Uh, Gigi McKelvey, uh, she is the host of Pretty Lies and Alibis. She is a rock star, literally and figuratively. She is the children of hippies. She posts all of the uh, Adelson jailhouse calls. She's an expert in the Lori Vallow Daybell trial, the Alec Murdoch trial. She's now becoming an expert in uh, the Dan Markell murder case. Gigi, what are you looking for next? What are you watching out for? Other than the 100 hours of calls, um, you know, just to see what I want to see this next status. Well, Donna's going to be on Zoom for this next status conference. But really, I'm just waiting for the trial at this point. I don't think Wendy's going to get arrested before then. So I just want to see because I'm going to tell you, Joel, Donna versus Georgia, if Donna takes that stand, it's going to be epic because mm. Georgia knows how to low-key burn somebody on the stand. She throws shade and then she's like, <laughs> no further questions. She's done. Donna's going to be like, wait. It's going to be <laughs> awesome. That's what I can't wait for. Georgia versus Donna. 
Like we're going to get a little bell and be like, ding, ding, let him go. Cause it's going to be, it's going to be huge. Gigi and I are going to be there uh, together for that from analytical Blarney, a super sticker. Gigi, thanks for all you do for the true crime community. I will continue to be one of your zealous troll fighting peeps in the comments. Keep on keeping on anyone who talks smack about Gigi. Let, they can talk smack about me all they want, but not her. Thank you for uh, being you always. Someone uh, tweeted at me right before this. They said, are you going to brag about how great your guests are today? Talk about your book uh, with your ego the size of the Grand Canyon. And I said one word. Yes, and I did it. <laughs> but I haven't plugged my book yet, but I will in just one moment. Um, Louis Baptiste, what can you say about him? Every time this guy's on, everyone loves listening to him. He is one half of uh, Webster and Baptiste attorneys at law in Tallahassee. He was also Dan Markell's FSU uh, law student. There's this question that came up, Lewis, in your final thoughts. How crazy is it that Dan said the fact that Wendy drove by the crime scene is a good fact for her? He's trying to spin everything. If you want to answer that and your uh, final thoughts tonight. I think it's just crazy. It's just exactly what you said. You know, it's a spinster spinning. I think what he's trying to, he's suggesting that by, of course, the fact that Wendy drove by the crime scene is evidence that she didn't know, because if she knew, she would never return to the crime scene. She would never go there. But the problem with that is there's the old, there's the old adage and the idiom that's older than me, which is that the criminal always returns to the crime scene. And so he's trying to argue against an idiom that has been around longer than me. And so, again, I think it's a horrible point. It, for my last comments, I end every show the same way which is that, you know, look, I, I pray for his two sons. Um, I, I, I pray for Markel's peace. Um, I, I, for all of them, you know, for Dan's peace in heaven. I, he changed my life. You know, I'm here, Webster and Baptiste, our firm exists because of Dan Markel, but for Dan Markel, we would not exist. I would not be doing what I'm doing, able to provide for my family and help people. And that's what I get to wake up every morning and do. And Dan Markel is a big reason that I can do that. And so I'm grateful. Um, if his sons ever watch Lincoln and Ben Ben, your dad loved you. He taught criminal law, but he mentioned your names once a week. He said your names. He loved you. And I want you to know it. Um, and the last thing I'll say is I always ask for people to pray for Lincoln and Ben Ben because I believe in the power of prayer and that it still works. But I don't I don't I realize that talk about Ruth and what she's going through. You know, I don't talk about praying for her and her peace and. I'm a mama's boy thinking through. And so I, I couldn't imagine my mom having to live with the reality of reliving my murder through three trials. And we know that justice is being sought, but this has to be so painful for Ruth Markell to sit in a courtroom and look at the people who killed her son, even though she's getting justice, that has to be extremely painful. And so um, I, I pray her peace and I ask that we all pray her peace and that you know, God will give her endurance to get through this challenge um, and that one day she'll be reunited, a, a real reunited with Ben Ben and Lincoln. And she can tell him how much Dan loved him because he loved you. Thank you, Joel, as always. Yeah, thank you. And Lorna McKenzie says, we love you, Lewis. Uh, Lewis mentioned being a mama's boy. I'm not at all, but I did write a book about my mom. And there it is. I'm doing this on purpose to annoy that troll who said I would plug my <laughs> book. But here it is. I am uh, plugging the book. It is available for pre-order. It's going to be available on Audible as well for pre-order mid-March. Carmen and I are going to voice it. This is going to be 
one hell of a job for me to get Carm to voice this book. Uh, we're going to start hitting the studio next week to get that underway. Please uh, pray for me there. Uh, John Singer, uh, one of the most stand-up guys I know, founder of Singer Deutsch LLP, graduate of Georgetown Law, a New York super lawyer. He does it all. He knows his case inside and out. Uh, I once got a LinkedIn message from a wacky attorney in New York City. I said, this guy must be a kook. Why is he reaching out to me? I had 2,000 subs. Then I started to read about John Singer, found out that he is the real deal, the realest deal that there is in New York City. Uh, trust me when I tell you, he's a big-time attorney who is giving us way too much free time that it is making me nervous. John Singer, <laughs> your final thoughts tonight. What are you looking for next in this seemingly never-ending saga? My, my final thoughts are that I, I hearken back to where we all were, those of us who've been obsessed with this case back in 2019, those of us who aren't from Tallahassee who may not have known the case prior, there was the Over My Dead Body podcast. And the, the uniting factor for so many of us in this case was anger, anger at the Adelsons for not being charged, anger at the Adelsons for committing this crime and for going about their lives unscathed. Look where we are now, though. Not only have there been convictions of Katie Magnanima and Sigfredo Garcia, but now Charlie's in jail for life. Donna is on the precipice of going to prison for life. Wendy, we all are in accord, is likely to be next. It, I, I mean, amidst this horrible tragedy, we are all in a much better place now than we were then when that feeling of anger, feeling of frustration, feeling um, that people were getting away with something. It, it was the centripetal force for us all, all of us who became obsessed with this case. And now we've got a lot more justice than we did then. And the train's moving along. And hopefully by 2025, all the Adelsons will be behind bars for life because they all did it. And we all know it. Well said. One final thing, just adding on to what Lewis said, uh, he is praying for Ben and Lincoln as we are. Uh, but I'm always reminded there are other victims, including Charlie's own son, Roman, as well as the hitmen and Katie McBonawa. They all have children and none of those kids uh, deserve what they are dealing with uh, in this lifetime right now, what they're going to deal with uh, for the extent of this lifetime. With that said, tomorrow, uh, we, by the way, we have a new channel, Best Trials in All of True Crime, a separate channel. We've been uh, airing the Michelle Traconis trial uh, having to do with Jennifer Farber Dulos, who was never seen again or and declared dead by a judge. That airs all day right there uh, tomorrow. And then 5 p.m. Eastern tomorrow night, Laura Engel and Ted Rollins of Court TV fame, two journalists that were on the Scott Peterson case from day one. Is he really innocent? Is the L.A. Innocence Project really involved in that? Is there a chance he gets off? Those are all the questions we are going to ask tomorrow. Until then. Love you, America. Love you, Tallahassee, Florida, New York City, South Carolina, and of course, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and everyone who I've missed. Love you all. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and... The chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, 
Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks. <laughs> 